So we come this morning to the sixth, the sixth and the final petition of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or probably more likely deliver us from the evil one. We should note the, the connection to the previous petition concerning the forgiveness of debts. Right, That was last week, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. So having been pardoned, and praying then for daily pardon, there's yet a recognition in the prayer of our remaining abiding weakness. And, and of our need going forward for deliverance from the tyranny of temptation. right From sin, from the evil one. The larger catechism, which I've quoted many times in this series, if you really want a good study on the commandments, you can just take up the larger catechism and go through them. But the larger catechism puts it this way here. After the pardon of our sins, even after the pardon of our sins, because of our weakness, we are of ourselves unable and unwilling to resist temptation. So we've already prayed. Right For God's name to be hallowed and his kingdom to come and his will to be done and our daily bread to be supplied for us to be forgiven as we forgive others. But there's still this situation that we're in, right? Where, where here we are now confessing with this petition that, as Paul puts it, the desires of the flesh, and by flesh here we mean the fallen person, the fallen human person bent away from God. We don't, we don't just mean this stuff. Flesh is the whole person. The desires of the flesh, Paul says, war against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit wage war against the flesh. This is in the redeemed, right? So that they're opposed to one another to keep you, Paul says, from doing the things you want to do. Right? And you can hear the same anguished cry of the Christian life in Romans 7. Further than that, we acknowledge here that we are not merely up against the flesh. As daunting as that would be. But we are on the scene, and this petition makes it clear, right? We are on the scene of an apocalyptic battle. Right? We are in the theater of eschatological events. We are engaged in spiritual warfare with supernatural, intelligent, malevolent powers arrayed against us in the heavenly places. In that sense, it's a haunted world. And we are vulnerable and exposed and in great need. That's why this petition is here. Even after we're pardoned, our catechism says. Right. So to pray this petition... Is the, is the very act of fleeing to Jesus Christ as refuge, as rock, as fortress, as deliverer. Right? When we pray this petition, we confess that we are strong only in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Right? So to, to pray this prayer is to take the posture, for example, of of Paul, the afflicted apostle, who declares what? God's grace is sufficient for us, and his power is made perfect 
in weakness. Notice, the power of God does not eliminate weakness. Weakness remains. In fact, weakness is the place that power is manifested. This petition reminds us of that. The power of God is made perfect in your weakness. God delights in taking strong men, men like Paul, men who we think are great men or heroes, right, and pulverizing them so that he can then do something with them. And and when you pray this prayer, right, we're confessing in it that we are weak, that our weakness remains, and that it is by grace, free grace, that we are strong. And that, of course, takes us right into the heart of the paradox of the Christian life in this age. We wish grace would eliminate our weaknesses, but that's just not what happens, Paul says. Grace makes us strong when we are weak. So that's the context. And with that, I want to make three points. They're there in the bulletin. Temptation, deliverance, doxology. So the first one's temptation. The first clause, lead us not into temptation. It might sound a little strange to your ears. It's, it's a question which has been discussed for centuries. The question is, why would God lead anyone into temptation? I mean, after all, right? the book of James warns us, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted with evil, James says, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So, why are we asking God not to do something that he doesn't do? Or indeed, he cannot do. So, part of the answer here lies, it is said, in distinguishing between testing and tempting. God tests us, we are told, but he doesn't tempt. Now, there is something correct here, I think. But we must admit that any test can become a temptation. Right, so it's kind of hard to put a big wall between testing and temptation. I mean, for example, Jesus was led by the Spirit. That means he was led by God into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So he was being tested by his father, but tempted by the evil one, if we want to put it that way. Yet it was God who led him into the conflict. I mean, think of tests in your life or tests in the Bible. Think of the test that Abraham has to undergo in Genesis 22. God tests Abraham with this incomprehensible demand to sacrifice Isaac. Well, that's a test, I think, that by its very nature is going to spawn or create numerous temptations. Right? God is constantly trying and testing his people in Scripture. And these various trials or tests can become for us an opportunity for temptation, an opportunity to sin. Nevertheless, I think we have to use this distinction. It's the best we have. God tests us, 
And these tests often cause temptations, either because of our own weakness, our own sin, the world, the evil one. So the distinction is useful, I think, but we have to handle it carefully. But there's an even bigger issue than that here, right? And that, that issue is, who are these combatants in this cosmic warfare in which we are caught up? You see, it's this aspect, I think, that is, is hard for us to grasp. We do not think in apocalyptic terms. And generally, when the church thinks in apocalyptic terms, it tends to be tied up with some sort of end-time craziness. But Paul's an apocalyptic thinker all the way down. Right? The advent of Jesus Christ is an, an invasion right, of heavenly forces to rescue the world, which is in dire straits. So you have these combatants in this cosmic warfare, God on the one hand, Satan on the other. The source, the motives of their actions are in complete contrast. God tests us, yes, repeatedly, but he does it out of his goodness, right, and out of his love. Satan out of his malice and his hatred. Their goals are at odds, right? God seeks to discipline and purify and refine us. He wants us to share his holiness. Whereas the evil one, Satan, seeks to overthrow and to destroy, for he was a murderer from the beginning. Calvin has this beautiful description. I don't know beautiful, but it's an it's a insightful description of what's going on with Job. Right? With Job... The Chaldeans who raid and destroy his children and his estate, they are doing it out of their own bloodlust. Satan is doing it to tempt and destroy Job, and God is doing it to test and refine his servant. And because of this, right, the same James who says God doesn't tempt anyone can also say trial and testing are good for you. They're good for us. He says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials of different kinds, knowing that to be tested produces steadfastness. So this petition is not a petition that's asking for us to be delivered out of all tempting situations. You know, it might sound like that if you read it at first. As if such a life were possible. Remember where we are, right? We're in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has already reminded us in numerous ways. He's assured us that you're going to have trials, and you're going to have temptation, and you're going to have persecution aplenty. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, right? Through many tribulations we enter the kingdom. And we glory in them. We glory in them because it's suffering which produces this eternal weight of glory for the saints. Suffering is like a manufacturing plant that produces glory. So, contrary then to the notion that we'll not face temptations, what the petition recognizes is that temptations of all sort are going to come. That's why we pray this. This is a prayer then to God that we would stand, that we would resist, that we would conquer Temptation. It is a prayer that we will not be overcome. By the way, this is deep in the Psalms, deep in the Jewish tradition, right? Jesus is probably, there's a known Jewish evening prayer 
which almost certainly Jesus knew. Here's what it says. Lead me not into the power of transgression, and bring me not into the power of sin, and not into the power of iniquity, and not into the power of temptation, and not into the power of anything shameful. That's a beautiful way that the Jews would end their evening. So again, this is a prayer in the language of the larger catechism that God would overrule the world and all that's in it. That he would subdue our flesh, that he would restrain Satan. We heard in the New Testament lesson that this is a prayer, in in Paul's words, that we would not be tempted beyond our ability. But with the temptation, God provides a way of escape that you might endure it. So temptation is a feature of life. Crying out this petition should be a regular form of piety for the saints. So the second thing, that's temptation. The second thing is deliverance. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. More likely, it's deliver us from the evil one. So the one who sanctifies us, causing us to stand in temptation is now called upon to rescue us, to deliver us. This is the apocalyptic language. We tend to hear this language, and we tend to hear it moralistically, right? But deliverance, I mean, think of deliverance. Deliverance is something that captive people pray, oppressed people pray, desperate people pray, exiled people pray, right? Paul says God gave us his son, Galatians chapter 1, to deliver us out of the present evil age. Or in John's words, as I alluded to earlier, the Son came to destroy the works of the devil. So one of the things I want us to see in this petition is there is here, even though we pray it every week, right? There is in the whole prayer, but particularly here, there is something desperate and apocalyptic going on. Right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us, rescue us, save us, intervene to deliver us from the clutches of the evil one. This is praying for complete and total rescue from evil. Right? Or from the evil one. This is praying for the kingdom to come. For the final defeat of the evil one. We are always oriented to the end in this prayer because it's the model of all true prayer. And the end has arrived in Jesus Christ. The apocalyptic deliverance is at hand. The final defeat of the evil one is already underway. Right? We pray this knowing that Christ has already delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has bound the strong man, the New Testament tells us. He's already defeated, and in Luther's words, lo, his doom, his final doom, is sure. Right? So the situation we are in is a war, to be sure, but it's a war against a defeated foe. Right? He's still dangerous. He's still paradoxically called the God of this world. But it's a war against a defeated foe. And so when we pray this prayer, it's kind of like girding oneself up. It's an act of putting the armor of God on to stand, as Paul puts it, in the evil day. 
It's a permanent kind of daily reminder, because you should be praying the Lord's Prayer regularly, that we aren't wrestling with flesh and blood. That we're up against malignant, evil, spiritual intelligences or powers. So to pray this prayer is to be sober-minded. It's to see the world aright. Right? Because our adversary, who's bound and destined for a final defeat, still prowls around like a roaring lion, Peter says, seeking somebody to devour. And until he's destroyed, the prayer reminds us, for the church has been praying this for thousands of years, right? Our deliverance and the deliverance of the whole creation is not yet fully realized. Remember this. Very close to this in Matthew's gospel, right? We're in Matthew chapter 6. Just back in chapter 4, Jesus Christ himself, Christ our champion, right? Christ our representative. He faces this onslaught of satanic temptation in the wilderness, right? And he refuses, right? He refuses to seek bread except from his father's hand. In his father's time. How did he live? He lived by every word which proceeded out of the mouth of God. He refused to tempt God in his trials. Or to bring the kingdom the easy way. Or to forsake the way of the cross. He refuses to worship or hallow any other name than the father's name. And our Jesus wrought a great triumph in the wilderness against the tempter and an even greater one in Gethsemane which culminates in an even greater victory at the cross. And that victory that Jesus Christ wrought in your flesh, in your and my humanity, that is a great source of comfort for us here. We're not on this battlefield without a champion who has already triumphed. He has done, Jesus has done what Adam failed to do, what Israel failed to do, what we have failed to do, and what we in our weakness continue to fail to do. And because he has prevailed against the most ferocious and extensive kind of temptation, it shall not prevail against you. Because Jesus has done what he's done, it shall not prevail against you. He himself suffered when he was tempted, so what? He's able to come to your aid, the aid of those who are tempted, so that he could be a sympathetic high priest with our weaknesses, so that he could ever live above for us to intercede. Even on earth, think about this, right? Even on earth, Jesus prayed fervently for us. He actually prays, his praying is actually shaped by the Lord's Prayer. If you, if you listen to the, like the echoes, the contours of what Jesus says. So in the shadow of the cross, he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
He's praying this petition for Peter. And again, again, in that great high priestly prayer in John 17, he says to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but I ask that you keep them from the evil one. There he's praying this petition for you and me, for everyone. It turns out that Jesus prays according to the pattern of the Lord's Prayer for you, for us. Now, we we know, of course, that Jesus ever lives above to intercede for us, right? He died for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He was raised for you. He ascends for you. He ever lives above to intercede for you. But you might ask yourself, what does he say when he's interceding? Well, we have some hints. He basically intercedes according to the structure of the Lord's Prayer. He's praying that your faith not fail, that the evil one be kept from you. And so our prayers then, our intercession, always, always, always depend and rest on his, on his perfect intercession. That's why we pray in Jesus' name, or through Jesus, or, or by Jesus we come to the Father. We're not just tacking on something at the end of our prayers. We're saying this intercession that he offers on the basis of his perfect life is the ground of our liberty and freedom and access and confidence in prayer. In the garden, in his own agonizing prayer, right, he tells the disciples, he tells Peter, James, and John, he basically tells them to repair to this petition. He might as well have said, hey, remember that last petition. Because here's what he says to them. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So, step back for a minute. Remember what Jesus is teaching. Not teaching, really. He's commanding us to do. He's commanding us to pray this petition. Right? There's three petitions we pray for ourselves in the prayer, right? Food, forgiveness, and this one, deliverance from evil. You could sum up everything we pray for, all of our requests, under those three headings. So Jesus is commanding us to pray for these things. So I ask, when's the last time outside the worship service we prayed it? I mean, are we asking To be led not into temptation, but to be delivered, to be rescued from the evil one? If we're not, it's probably because we just don't see the world in the apocalyptic terms that the New Testament sees it in. Or it may be that we don't sense our weakness or our vulnerability acutely enough. If so, right then today the Spirit is speaking a word to sober us to cause us to gird up our minds, to say, oh, yes, 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 I need to pray. Maybe every morning. To be delivered, to be led not into temptation, because I know my weaknesses. And to be delivered from the evil one, because I know what I'm up against. And because I know what my champion and king has done. So gird up your minds. like Realize that the arena in which we live and move and have our being is a battlefield. Yes, it's the battlefield which is the site of Christ's victory. But it is still a battlefield. And so this this particular petition, 
causes us to look afresh to Christ the victor, right? the conqueror of the evil one. It's often been said that in the West, we emphasize very much Christ's atoning death for sins. We think of Christ as bearing the wrath of the Father and bearing away our sins, whereas historically in other parts of the church, they tended to see the cross as an instrument of deliverance from demonic powers. Christ, Christ himself in the midst of this apocalyptic battle, arrayed against the powers of darkness and death itself, and he destroying them by dying. Of course, both models are true. But here in this petition, we're reminded of this Christus Victor model. Christ is victor over the powers. When you think of the cross, you should think of this. The overcomer of temptation, Jesus Christ, who will not lead us into it. The deliverer, who will yet deliver us from all evil. This one alone, this one alone, Christ alone, is able to keep you from stumbling. And having kept you from stumbling, he desires and shall present us blameless, Hebrews says, in the presence of his glory with great joy. Jesus is able to establish us, our weak, our vulnerable, our wandering hearts, blameless in holiness before his God and Father at the coming of all the saints with him. So that's deliverance. There's temptation, there's deliverance, and that brings us to the third and final point here, the final point on the Lord's Prayer, and that's doxology. Doxology. After the sixth petition, there's a doxology. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And with that, the prayer closes. Now, this doxology is not in the best or the oldest New Testament manuscripts. It isn't a few ancient manuscripts, but it's almost certainly not original. And you'll notice that, right? It doesn't appear in the English text of Matthew's Gospel, Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer, or the English text of Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. Nevertheless, by the second century, Christians were adding it to the end of the Lord's Prayer. They were probably following a common and a noble Jewish tradition, right, which had this pattern of appending benedictions of God at the end of prayers. So certainly there's nothing unbiblical about the closing doxology. On the contrary, it's profoundly biblical and fitting. Right? Sentiments like it litter all, the whole of Scripture. We heard one this morning from 1 Chronicles 29 in our call to worship. I hope you heard that echo there in the call to worship and the last petition of the Lord's Prayer. There David says this, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Spectacular ascription of praise to God by David. In fact, thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory is just a condensed version of what David prays in 1 Chronicles 29. So the doxology is important, even if it may not be original. 
It's certainly scriptural. But what it does, what it helps remind us of, in a beautiful way too, it ties back to the beginning of the prayer, to the theme of God's glory and God's name and God's will and God's kingdom. It reminds us that all of these petitions, all of them, offered in our impotence and in our frailty, they depend utterly on the divine glory and power. The power which at the appearance of Christ shall subject all things to God. It's a reminder that we are praying here, this is another way to put it, I think, in the Lord's Prayer, for things that we have no capacity to bring to pass. Things which are the leading edge, things which will ultimately bring in the fullness of the new creation. But in the Lord's Prayer, we are ultimately praying for the whole new creation to come, for the kingdom to come in fullness. Right? For the earth to be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So the doxology, it's simple, but it reminds us that prayer in the Christian life is about God and his glory because we often make it about us and our needs. So when this doxology is at the end, we are reminded prayer is about God and the plenitude of his imminent radiant splendor, God and his glory. It reminds us then that God himself and the enjoyment of God is our chief end. That the highest form of prayer is praise, doxology itself. We need to pray more, probably, many of us, because prayer is difficult. We stumble at it. We need to pray more. But you know what else we need to do? We need to praise God in our prayers more. Most of us can probably improve on both of those fronts. The highest form of prayer is doxology. The petition reminds us that our needs, bread, pardon, rescue, are ordered to an end. Right? What's the end? They're ordered to the end that you would join the heavenly throng saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. To our Father in heaven, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Amen.